the big one that we're going um, is for Marco Polo, or now they're 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 reclassified as Hugh Margali. So you know, one of those top tier bucket list uh, pinnacle species. You know that that worldwide, you know, mountain hunters and sheep hunters kind of look at as that that pinnacle species, uh, that top tier animal. And then also we'll be combining that hunting uh, mid Asian uh, ibex while we're there. External ballistics going from any massive uh, elevation change like that is, is drastically going to change um, what your shoot to formula is from what you're actually getting in a range there. Absolutely no expert um, on sheep or ibex, you know, just don't have that time under my belt. But man, I've spent hours on YouTube um, and, and looked at probably every picture on Google, uh, you know, that, that's on the internet of ibex and, and just trying to get that reference point as to what a shooter is, what a trophy is. You know, it's a lot harder when you're in the moment and the adrenaline's flowing and, and trying to decide whether or not it's a shooter or not. Yeah, hopefully looking forward to sending you that in-reach message uh, that says big ram down. I am excited to announce that we have partnered with the Outdoorsman's in Fountain Hills, Arizona. They can provide all of your optics needs along with some of the best machine tripods and mounting accessories in the business. Swarovski, Zeiss, Leica, Leupold, binoculars, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, you name it. They can provide it and at the industry's most competitive prices. They are offering our listeners an exclusive offer on all Outdoorsman's manufactured products such as packs, tripods, tripod heads, and other gear they manufacture. At checkout, type in the discount code RNA15, that is RNA15, and you will receive a one-time 15% off your order. Please go to Outdoorsman's.com and use the discount code today. Thank you for the support. All right, we are here with my good friend uh, and colleague, Justin Schaefer. Justin uh, is a buddy of mine that uh, I met uh, in New Zealand, actually, of all places. Interesting uh, how we meet people all over the world, but I met Justin uh, when I was uh, over in uh, the South Island, New Zealand, and Justin was there um, hunting tar and stag uh, with another mutual friend that we've all become friends with, Josh Harris, and uh, just have stayed in contact and have been friends throughout the years. Uh, I've always appreciated and respected my uh, my friendship with Justin. He's just a solid guy. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, he's getting ready to head to Kyrgyzstan uh, to do a combo hunt, which, uh, as most of you know, I just came back from there. So we thought it would be kind of cool just to kind of compare notes, talk about um, you know different gear, stuff that, that he's taken versus stuff that I was taking, and, and again, just talk about different experiences that we would have. So anyway, Justin, I uh, want to welcome you uh, to the show, man. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, talking about how we met, you know, it just shows, you know, one more example of uh, just how small the world is. And then uh, even smaller, uh, the industry that we're in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And of course, you've been uh, you've been a longtime Kuyu guy, and of course now, um, 
you know, retired from the military, which thank you for that. And then, and went to work for QU as their kind of their senior uh, program um, guide and outfitter director, which is pretty cool. And we've always had a, a relationship. Uh, you were able to convince me to jump over about a year, year and a half ago, and probably one of the better yep. decisions I've made. So just excited to continue our friendship and our bond there. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. On the, the personal and professional side, both of them. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so you're probably pretty stoked, huh? You're getting ready to get on a plane and head to Kyrgyzstan, right? Yeah, for sure. This has been a, a long time in the making, you know, counting down the days. We were supposed to go this time last year, and with uh, all the travel restrictions and uh, all the things that were put in place with COVID, it got bumped to this year. Yeah. And uh, so we had a long time to, to prep and look forward to it and, and count down the days. Now, from what I understand, this is not your first trip to Kyrgyzstan. You've been there before, correct? Or you've been to the mid-Asian area? Yeah, no, I went to Kyrgyzstan um, eight or nine years ago and hunted uh, mid-Asian Ibex there with a couple of buddies of mine. So okay. this will be my second time going back there. Okay. So you've obviously got a little bit of uh, tribal knowledge and, and have some, some little intellect to know and kind of what to prepare and what to do. But, you know, eight or nine years ago, things were probably a lot different. Gear was a lot different then, and, and things have come a long ways during that time. So. Yeah, no, a lot has changed from there. Um, still a lot of, you know, samples to to learn from and, and take home that'll apply to this trip that we learned from the first time going over. But yeah, definitely some, some updates to everything. Sure. So your, uh, your plan is to go over and, and do a combo. So maybe just kind of, you can talk, maybe explain kind of the two species of animals that you're going to be going after. Yeah. So, um, the, the big one that we're going, um, is for Marco Polo or now they're, they're, they're reclassified as Humar Gali. So, you know, one of those top tier bucket list uh, pinnacle species, you know, that that worldwide, you know, mountain hunters and sheep hunters kind of look at as that that pinnacle species, uh, that top tier animal. And then also we'll be combining that hunting uh, mid-Asian uh, ibex while we're there. Okay. Very cool. So combo Marco and the Hugh Margali along uh, with ibex, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be awesome. And just thinking back to, uh, to my trip, you know, we, we were in an area that uh, didn't have the uh, the Marco Polo sheep. Actually, they weren't far from the region that we were in, but we were in an area that had just super high quality, high density ibex, which made our trip pretty awesome. Would have been cool to see uh, some sheep while we were there, but uh, didn't have that opportunity. But from what I understand, and, and you may know more, um, you know, there are only certain areas within Kyrgyzstan that have both. Now, ibex are, are pretty prolific across most of the country, but there's only certain places that have um, the Marco Polo sheep. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. Um, the the Humar Gali and Marco Polo, they're, uh, Kyrgyzstan is one of the places that they're the most prolific in, but um, they're definitely... Uh, more in abundance along that uh, southern, um, southeastern border along uh, China there. Okay. So those mountain regions there, we're heading to the, the Narn area uh, versus the Issy Cool, um, where we hunted Ibex last time. So we'll be in a little bit different part of the country from where we were on the first trip. Okay. Yeah, so we were in Issy Cool. That was where, where we kind of basically hunted most of our area into that kind of that southeastern uh, portion um just south of uh, uh, basically flew into Bishkek and drove, you know, like 12 yep. hours, which is kind of the, yeah. it sounds like the standard, right? It's Bishkek is, is kind of the, the, the one hub for flying into. And, and then from there, 
Um, I think we went near, it was like Caracal Lake. It was a really large lake that we passed by. And then south of there, Eshikul Lake, it might have been. And then we... Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah super popular lake for, for recreating. Um, one of their bigger tourist spots there in, in Kurdistan. Yeah. Yeah. So so in terms of your travel plans, I, again, assuming you guys go through Bishkek and then kind of what direction will you guys be going? Yeah. So um, there's a group of four of us and a cameraman, so five total. And uh, we're all going to meet up in Chicago, fly through um, Istanbul, Turkey, which is pretty common, yep. and then down to uh, Bishkek, and then anywhere from a 10 to 12-hour drive, you know, depending on road conditions, to get to base camp. And then, um, from what I understand, we'll be hunting Marco Polo first, and uh, that'll be anywhere from a five to six-hour horseback ride from base camp. Um, hopefully, you know, we get those knocked down early and... and have enough time to, to go chase Ibex and then we'll we'll move to a different region from there from the same base camp but it's anywhere from eight to ten hours by horseback um, into Ibex country but we're, we're able to hunt both species from the same base camp okay very cool yeah so it sounds like it could be a um, kind of a similar type um, terrain similar type hunt that uh, that we just came back from you know one of the things that's interesting about hunting in Kyrgyzstan and, and it, something that that you know, most may or may not understand, but it's the altitude. And, and, you know, for most of us, I mean, you're in Alaska, so, um, you know, elevation is, you can get some pretty good relief where you're at, you know, me being down here at, uh, at basically sea level, it, it's a little different, but when you get into Kyrgyzstan, it's incredible because the valleys are, 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 are just beautiful. And then you look up and you have these just massive, huge skyscraper mountains all around you. And, you know, and, and you're really getting into elevations of, you know, 10 to 12 to 13,000 feet. Um, are there any precautions that you take for altitude or things that you do to kind of prepare yourself for that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's only so many things you do, and it's funny that you talked about, um, you know, the elevation that I was reading uh, just today, and it said something like 70% of the country is above 8,000 feet. Wow. You know, which is just kind of crazy to put into perspective. Um, but yeah, base camp where we're heading into, the, the closest village is a little over 10K, and then most of the hunting we'll be doing will be anywhere from that 12 to 14,000 foot range, you know, which is just, those are crazy numbers. And you talk about me being here in Alaska, I live in Anchorage. And, you know, people associate Alaska with the mountains, but being here in Anchorage, I'm only at 400 feet above sea level. Sure. So I'll have, you know, a, a, a lot of altitude being gained there as well. So, and, you know, with the body, and you, you break down the science of it. There's only so much you can do. You know, they say that it takes roughly 30 days for the body to properly acclimate, um, you know, to altitude. You, you just don't have those type of days on, on the trip. So, you know, there's a few things you can do that'll help. You know, one being the best shape that you can so that your body performs, you know, at its best. Um, being hydrated is, is one of those super critical things that, you know, the better hydrated you are, the better your body's going to function again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then there's meds that you can take. Uh, you know, one of the ones that I'm going to be taking with me, or the, the primary one that I'm taking with me is the, the wilderness athlete. Um, and what that does is is... You know, it just helps the body to increase blood flow. It helps boost oxygen, um, delivering the saturation. You know, it helps you that that do that rapid altitude ap- adaptation that, you know, you wouldn't normally be able to do because you don't have the time frame to do it. So, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. The best shape you can stay hydrated and then, you know, whatever you can do to help boost your oxygen saturation. 
Yeah, and that progression you talked about is exactly kind of the, the progression that I used. I mean, part of my training is, is obviously trying to stay in good shape, you know, year round. I just come off, uh, you know, my, my hunt in BC. So I'd had a 10 day, you know, backpack hunt and literally turned right around and, and did that hunt. So from a kind of my, my body having a pack on leg standpoint was super strong, but when you get to that elevation and, and I was only in six to 7,000 feet in BC. So, you know, we were almost double that uh, in Kyrgyzstan. I, I did some yep. of the same stuff. Um, you know, the wilderness athlete, um, altitude, um, that that's, that's some really good stuff. And, and, yep. uh, I started taking that toward the tail end of my BC hunt and I didn't have any issues uh, with altitude when we, um, got to Kyrgyzstan. We, we did the long drive. We got to our base camp. They acclimated us a day. The next day we rode up on horses, got to our kind of our spike base uh, on the mountain. We were acclimated there a day. And then we yep. started hunting the following day and, and uh, none of us really had any issues. Our, our camera guy got a little bit sick um, that night. He was, he was having headaches, but generally they, I would say for this, the rapid acclimation that we could do, um, in a couple of days, you know, we were pretty well acclimated, at least from, from that standpoint. Now the one yeah, tough, as much as you could be. Yeah, exactly. The one tough thing is when you start hiking and getting up in that elevation, your lungs definitely feel it, but at least you're not getting the headaches and the other stuff like you were talking about. And yeah, and hydration, I can't say, you know, that's so important to be hydrated when you're on the mountain like that. Yep. Yeah. One of those other supplements that I take that, you know, I, I use on every hunt I go on, um, no matter what I'm hunting is, is hydrate and recover. Uh, berry blast you know one i just like the the taste of it and you know if you can make something taste better you tend to drink more so it just sure. one of those tools that helps you to stay hydrated better so yep <clears throat> so you said on your hunt sounded like you guys will do um your your hugh margali marco hunt first and then you said you're going to take roughly an about an eight hour horseback ride back in to get to ibex so horses will will be a part of your guys's hunt on this trip yeah, for sure. Both areas that we're accessing um, for Marcos and for Ibex will be via horseback. So, okay. um, yeah, 90% of the travel, from what I understand, will be on horseback, uh, getting to those areas um, to, to hunt both of the species. Okay. Yeah, so just a little interesting. You know, we, we had we had horses on our hunt, and, and again, I, I think there's always goods and bads, you know, with horses. You know, I mean, these are, these are pretty well-trained, pretty well-broke horses. Um, but, you know, they have limitations too. And, and there's a lot of yep. things that, that I like to do where I'm just kind of on my own feet a lot of times. But I will say having the horses enables you to, to bring gear and probably stuff that you would probably second guess on a backpack hunt, right? We, you know, oh, we, yeah, for sure. You know, it, it definitely changes the mindset on, on what you can take. You, you don't necessarily have to, um, you know, count every single ounce like you're doing on a backpack sheep hunt where you're carrying all that weight on your back for the duration of the time that you're out there, you know, you can get away with a little bit more, you know, you can't get crazy. It's still, you know, it's a horse. It's not a, the bed of a truck, Yeah. you know, so you do have limitations, but it definitely gives you that ability to um, pack a few more luxury items, you know, or, or something that, you know, you might want to take on your backpack sheep hunt, but you don't because of the weight. For sure. So yeah, it gives you a little bit more flexibility um, to be able to, uh, to take more gear and take different types of gear um, that you wouldn't normally if you were having to carry all that on your own back. Yep. Yeah, I know you and I were kind of chit-chatting back and forth a few weeks ago about trekking poles and a few other things. And I, you know, I told you, I, you know, I had mine in my pack, but I don't, I don't think I ever used them because a, a fair portion of the time, if we weren't on horses, you know, we were in just high scree and, and shale. And it, for me, 
it's hard for me to use trekking poles on that stuff because I'm typically more, I put gloves on my hands and try to use my hands, you know, versus using trekking poles. But again, those are one of those creature comforts that, you know, I think in a backpack hunt, they're a no brainer, but a hunt like this, they really don't add a lot of weight and, and be something that'd be easy to throw in your pack. So. Yeah. And for me, um, all the mountain hunting that I do, like, I, I mean, I, it, it's funny. I've had this conversation with, uh, Austin Atkinson from hunting full and, and, you know, I, I still, the line that he uses that he would have been dead, you know, long ago if it wasn't for trekking poles, you know, uh, going up the mountain and then especially coming off the mountain under load. Yeah. It, it's so many times that those trekking poles are absolutely critical. Uh, river crossings are another one, you know, um, they're just, it's a great tool to have and and it's one of those must-have items for me when i hit the mountains yep yeah for sure so you're going to be heading out here soon so october um you know we were in there in september and i would say weather was pretty mild but we were on a you know kyrgyzstan where we were hunting is a very similar parallel to that what we're on here so the september hunting here kind of reminded me of like you know september fall elk hunting in, in the states right where it's you know, fifties and sixties during the day, the lows would get down, you know, in the, in the thirties, probably at the coolest, but forties for general. So it made it pretty easy for, for kind of gear and, and what we were going to bring. But October, I've, I've actually seen some of my guides that I, 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 that I hunted with, they've sent me videos and shown that they've actually gotten some snow already up there. So is the, is the weather conducive to uh, more of an October type hunt here? Is it going to be colder or what kind are you expecting for weather? Yeah, no, so it's definitely going to be cold. And like you said, it, it's kind of on parallel with where we're at. Um, and October there is that transition time, especially in the mountains, you know, where you could have that good weather where it's 30 to 40 and sunny and clear, or you could be below zero in a blizzard. And that's kind of been one of those challenges with us, um, you know, with baggage limitations with the airline. And then, you know, again, what we can take in and out of the field on horseback, um, you know, trying to decide uh, with our layering system what exactly we're taking, mm-hmm. you know, so we're... We're, we've got a wider temperature span that we've got to prepare for, you know, somewhere in that zero to 40 range is kind of where we're at, which is a huge spectrum, you know, when it comes to layering. So, yeah, it's kind of been a challenge. Um, the forecast now, obviously, we leave this Friday and, you know, things change fast, especially in mountain areas. But uh, right now, the weather conditions look really good for us. The the nearest village that's there is right around seven, 8,000 feet, and it's showing highs in the upper 40s and lows um in the the upper 30s okay you know you probably take 10 degrees off of that once you get an elevation and um it, it, the weather forecast looks really good for us so we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed hoping that uh we're able to get in and out of there without getting caught in any of those big mountain storms yeah yeah for sure now that's that's good and you know and, and i one of the things that the our guys were telling us about is obviously as the winter kind of you know blows in later in the year into november you know those ibex kind of get pulled out of the, the higher mountains where they yep. come lower and and uh, but they're also their you know their capes and their hides they start to build that kind of that winter hide which they're a lot prettier but you know our experience in september was is i mean they were high and they were in huge bands i mean we were seeing bands 30 to 40 you know solid billies and the hard part was is you're looking at 30 or 40 of them trying to figure out okay which one do i want to shoot because they all yeah. look big right yep and uh, field judging you know ibex is is kind of a interesting conversation because you know i would by no means consider myself an expert but after about a couple days of really seeing them and spending time behind the glass looking at them you can really start to break down a good quality billy versus you know yep. probably a mid-grade billy and i'm, I'm assuming yeah. you know marco polo sheep are probably similar i mean you've done a ton of sheep hunting in your life but you probably have 
have an idea of kind of what you're looking for or would be field judging looking for? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, absolutely no expert um, on sheep or Ibex, you know, just don't have that time under my belt. But man, I've spent hours on YouTube um, and, and looked at probably every picture on Google, uh, you know, that that's on the internet of Ibex and, and just trying to get that reference point as to what a shooter is, what a trophy is, and then, you know, something that we want to pass on. So yeah. got a pretty good idea, you know, of what it, what we're looking for, but you know, it's a lot harder when you're in the moment and the adrenaline's flowing and, and trying to decide whether or not it's a shooter or not. Yeah. And on that, on that note, it's, it's interesting because you talk about adrenaline in the moment and, and there actually becomes a point where there's a bit of a pressure situation because what, what we found was, is, you know, our guides, they just, they don't speak English, right? So, yep. so you're, Shoot. yeah, <laughs> exactly. Shoot and big Shoot. and big. Yep. So you're like, okay, but they all look big, right? And you yep. got this band of, you know, in our case, the first band that, that uh, Andy shot out, there was over 40 billies in there. And yeah, I'm looking at all, yeah. yeah, I'm looking at all of them thinking, okay, they all look good. And they're all saying big, I back, shoot, shoot. So you really have to, what we found worked well was, was having, you know, me with Andy or Andy with me, vice versa. And we were spotting for each other and giving each other ranges. And what's interesting is, is as you kind of phase out the guides as they're talking to you and you hear yep. your buddy who actually speaks English, right. And tells you, Hey, there's a big one on the left or, Hey, the third one in from the right is a shooter. And he's at, you know, 450 yards. And we were doing that for each other. And that really helped because it's hard trying to work through the language barrier with the guides. It's a, it's it a challenge. Yeah, no. Yeah, went through that firsthand um, the, the last time I was there. And luckily for us with the, the group that we have and the, the dynamic on, on how it's going to work with the Marco Polos up front is we'll be hunting in pairs. Okay. So like I said, it's, you know, critical to have that buddy that's there that's a little bit cooler in the moment that, you know, knowing he's not pulling the trigger, he can help you read wind, uh, give you ranges, help you sort through, you know, where you've got that narrowed field of, of vision through your, your scope or, yeah. you know, just being in that moment, it, it's nice to have that partner there. Absolutely. And then, so I, I saw that you'd been sighting or you'd been shooting a rifle. So you're planning to uh, take a firearm then on this hunt? Yeah. So for sure. I mean, just, um, the amount of time that we have in country, um, you know, the amount of money spent, uh, that's gone into it, you know, this is a huge financial investment for me. Yeah. Um, and then along with that, we're filming this hunt for Kuyu, you know, so we really want to up the odds on being able to put together a quality film, um, and, and being able to put some animals down in it. So yeah, not even taking a bow on this trip. Um, I'm taking my, uh, GA precision six, five and, uh, my buddy Neil at Hornady sent me a bunch of ammo, uh, earlier in the year. So every time that I've had the chance to get to the range, I've been putting rounds down range. Okay. Getting ready for this hunt. Just, just make sure that, you know, all my gears dialed in and that, you know, the fundamentals are there. So that when it comes time, all that muscle memory is in place and, you know, I can, I can pull the trigger, let it fly and know that it's going to hit where I'm aiming. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, speaking for kind of the Ibex hunt, I mean, one thing, you know, we identified real quick is, you know, the guides move really fast. I mean, they're, they're incredible how much country they can cover. You know, they walk through that shale like it's nothing. So keeping up to yeah. them is, you know, you talk about, you know, that physical, you know, not only the, the physical toughness, the mental toughness of those hunts, but physically being able to, to keep up. But I will say, you know, they, they will get you pretty dang close for the Ibex. And, and uh, you know, and, and again, they just they live in that country. That's yep. what they do. Um, yeah, that's their backyard. Trust their yeah. guide, right? Trust your guide. Yep. It's incredible how good they are. Yeah, and, and, you know, as far as, like, I, I, I pride myself on being one of those guys that can glass 
Um, but those guys will put you to shame, won't they? Oh, my gosh. I mean, we'll be sitting there, you know, riding horses, and they'll stop and look up, and they'll see them with their naked eye, and then they'll put their glass yep. up. You know, then we get off the horses, and then from there we kind of go in on foot. But that was kind of the interesting thing is, you know, they wanted to a lot of times take us right up to them in horses, and yep. I was more of a I want to get off the horse and spot and stock to the best of the ability that we can. And, and, and we kind of got that, that, that kind of that general – process you know with our guides knowing that that was kind of the method and take that we wanted to hunt so they were good with that and we probably walked a little more but uh we also you know we got into i think better quality ibex and we weren't spooking them nearly as much yeah. as we would have been on uh you know on the yeah, horses not riding so right up onto them that yeah. was our experience too is that you know those guys they really didn't want to get off horseback they wanted to ride up to the very point where you got off of it and shot yeah yeah so Which, yeah like you just you know isn't my style of hunting so correct well, cool. So, yeah. So, uh, thinking about, I guess, you know, gear. So we talked a little bit about the weather and some of the stuff and you were talking about as we were just jumping on. Um, so you're going to bring a lot of your own food. Um, and, and, and my recommendation would be is do that. I mean, we brought, we brought our own food. Now they have food and the guides have food, but one of the things yep. we, we kind of noticed was it was a lot of noodles, a lot of, you know, high carb type stuff, which isn't bad up there, but you do need a little bit of protein mixed in there. So, you know, having your own meals and snacks, I think is important. And, and, uh, again, with having horses, you can do that. You can bring up your own food. So, yeah. And that was one of those things that I drew from the experience being there the first time is the food. Um, one, there wasn't a lot of it and two, it wasn't very good. So, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, being able to, to put together my own meal plans, um, my own meal kit, uh, for this trip, definitely going to help. I think, it, you know, be able to put a lot more fuel and energy into the body for sure did a lot more back out of it so yeah and the thing you don't realize even at that elevation you know you're you're burning calories all the time whether you're cold and you're shivering or whether you're standing there or whether you're you know walking over to the creek to fill up your water bottle i mean you're continually burning calories up there and when you talk about you know how your body perfuses oxygen and you know to your extremities i mean all that is so key and vital up there uh, because you're, it's a totally different world when you get up there. And, and what's interesting about getting up to those elevations is also how your rifle performs too. And, uh, it was interesting on, on the first hunt that we did, Andy was the first one out of the gate. And, uh, I actually wasn't right there with him. Um, he was with the guides and he did a, basically a line of sight, um, yardage with his, with his range finder. And he'd identified, you know, there was about a 10 degree angle there and uh, he shot probably two feet over the back of that Ibex yep. and he had super common. Yeah. He had no idea or concept for, um, you know, drag and obviously the, the angle and the compensation and corrections on that rifle. And, uh, you know, I had to, I had to help him with some of that, but it was interesting how that rifle shot differently at elevation. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the external ballistics going from any massive uh, elevation change like that is, is drastically going to change um, what your shoot-to formula is from what you're actually getting in a range there. You know, that's why it's important to have, um, you know, some of the, the tools of the trade, like the, the onboard ballistic computers and uh, the, the Kestrel wind meters. And we're taking Swarovski EL range TA binos and... Uh, they've got onboard ballistic computers that do all those calculations for you. You know, they take in the barometric pressure, um, the altitude, the angle, and they give you true, true, 
true shoot-to formulas where you're not having to try and figure out all that math in your head because it's massively different, you know, coming from sea level to 12, 13, 14,000 feet. Your bullet does a lot of different things than what you're used to. Yeah, and that's good to hear that. I mean, I, I was I was going to ask you kind of about optics and what you guys were bringing, but, um, you know, having dope charts and all that, kind of the old yep. version to do it, I mean, that, that that's doable. But, again, the problem is, is that having to do a lot of that stuff, you know, when you got an Ibex standing there at 400 yards is, is tough. So having, having you know, um, you know optics that will do a lot of that for you. So I, I run the Leica Geovids, the 3200.coms, yep. and they basically do the same thing, right? And, and I was able to Bluetooth my phone um, yep. to my to my optics, and we put in all of, um, you know, Andy's, um, all the bullets, the ballistic coefficient, the, the, the velocity, put all that stuff in, the environmentals pull in through the Kestrel, which is Bluetooth. It was incredible how that thing would read out. And, and it was giving us yardages that were spot on after, you know, after the first time he had missed. So that it's critical at those elevations to make sure you have that down. Yeah, no, for sure. Especially again, when you're putting that type of, of time and financial investment into these international trips, you know, you want to have the the best equipment possible to help you know make your trip successful and and having that upgrades in in your optics and you know that type of technology is, is huge yeah gives you a huge benefit huge advantage going into it and speaking of optics so sounds like you guys are dialed on the binos are you guys bringing spotting scopes in is that a plan with tripods yeah we are for sure um you know Again, well, we've got nine days on the ground, so we've got a lot of time um, to be able to sort through some animals, especially if we've got any weather. And uh, for me, having um, that big spotting scope, I'm taking a, a Swarovski ATX-95, which is uh, 25 to 75 power, you know, give me that ability to be able to, to pick through and make sure I'm shooting the type of animal that I want to shoot, you know, yeah. to see it through, you know, that, that bigger optics good and 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 again that'd be a huge recommendation is you know to to the best you can bring the optics that you can the the guides don't have very great optics um you know they got 10 by 42 binoculars they don't have spotting scopes and now again they can judge and and see and and they do pretty well but once you put them underneath like i brought a i brought a um, sarovsky 85 with me and once you put them under that they could really start picking apart especially the ibex to where you know it's a difference of looking at them through a 10 by 42 binocular and a you know an 85 millimeter objective on a you know Swarovski BTX spotting scope it's a big difference and yeah you for sure and really like you said when in. you're you're sorting through a group of 40 animals you know you, you you're there you want to take the biggest one you can you know yep yeah absolutely so that's good to hear you guys are bringing optics and I'll, and I, one thing i'll say is those guides they'll, they'll want to hog your optics they'll want to look through your spotting scope they'll want to take pictures oh, yeah. through your spotting scopes pretty funny because they just don't have stuff like that there you know nope yeah that was one of the things i saw the first time the first time i went i had a set of Leica geovid 10 by 42s and uh um, both of our guides had like world war ii era russian binoculars i mean just <laughs> yeah. old as dirt and uh, the first time they looked through my binoculars, you know, it was like, you know, an awakening to them. And uh, every time we'd stop, the first thing they'd do is they'd walk up to me and stick their hand up, you know, to get my binoculars for yep. me. So um, this trip around, uh, so I'm taking my uh, 10 by 42 EL ranges, and then I'm also taking my 15 by 56s. Okay. So one, you know, to be able to have the bigger glass to, to be able to look for or look through. And then, um, you know, depending on what our guides have for optics, being able to give them better quality optics so that I'm not having to hand my binoculars to them yeah. every time we stop. 
Yeah, I did the I did the same thing. I brought tens. I brought my fifteens, and they would typically in the evenings if we were back to base camp or whatever, they would go ride you know, right before dark. And I would typically kick them a, a pair of my binoculars and they would go. And yep. typically every time they come back, they would find, you know, billies that we were going to hunt uh, the next morning. So it's always reassuring. Now, the interesting thing about our hunt, you know, was, is, you know, last year there was no hunting the year prior, this concession had just been bought out and they had very limited hunting there. So really these, these animals hadn't been hunted in a few years and we were the first group in. So, I mean, we were seeing, you know, ibex that really hadn't been hunted in, in two to three years, and and was that part of the reason the quality was better? And you know, maybe they were in bigger bands, possibly. But you know, I think overall, um, you know, a lot of hunting didn't happen last year, so there's there is the potential for higher quality this year going into a lot of these international hunts. Yeah, for sure, I, I agree, and and gave you the chance to to get the pick of the litter and. Man, you shot an absolute giant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, Andy and I, we, we just had a heck of a trip. We both shot two. And, and on the last day I was able to, I was able to get in on that, on that, uh, giant that I shot. He was just under 50. He's like 49 and change, 125 okay. yeah, centimeters. Yeah. 50. We yep. hadn't talked since you left for Canada other than text. So yep. yeah. yeah, I knew he was pushing it, but I thought he, I thought he'd go over. That thing was a, is a monster. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was, he was, it was, you know, it was just one of those things when you know we spotted him Andy had shot his second one and and we actually <laughs> spotted him and two others um kind of working towards where we were so we got Andy's last one taken care of and then we hunted those three and and uh I was able to make the shot it was a 450 yard shot a moving shot um as he was moving away from us and and just dumped him and good yeah. way to end the trip and was pretty happy no, with sure. that yeah so yeah i mean the first first billy you shot was really nice but that second one's an absolute no-brainer you know <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. one you don't have to look through the spotting scope to know that it's a giant exactly and i you know and that's you know we were that was the one we were obviously looking for the whole trip and and yeah we saw one other one of that quality and and uh didn't get an opportunity to get on them but you know hopefully you know you guys will have opportunities at you know um you know those type of quality you know ibex and you know, they say the best Ibex in the world, you know, live in Kyrgyzstan and, and, you yep. know, based on our experience, you know, there were just some absolute giants that we saw. Um, and even we saw some deadheads that were giant deadheads that, you know, whether it was from wolves or snow leopards or any predators or what have yep. you, that we just saw a ton of deadheads too, that were in that area. So had a pretty good idea. We were in definitely in a good area. Yeah. No, it sounds like it. No, no shortage of numbers for you guys. Yep. Which obviously, you know, just helps for to make it a better trip. You, you travel all that way, and you know, last thing you want to do is get there and spend a week, you know, digging through the dirt, turning yep. up single digits. You know, it's nice to be able to to see lots of animals and and pick through them and not feel rushed or pressured like you you have to shoot the first decent one that you find. Yeah, yeah, and they they continually put us on. Like I said, good bands, good billies, and you know, and again, it was kind of coming upon us to sort through them and figure out. Yeah which one to shoot but you know again i think and that's one thing you know as you guys go and and you as you you know hunt in pairs it'll just be important whoever your pair is just you know have him be that guy under the glass looking at all of them right because you said like you said your field of view and the scope is going to be different than what he's going to be able to look at and really trust uh you know trust you know what they but obviously if there's a giant and it's you know it's in your focal plane then you're going to dump it but um yeah it's just uh it it is that was the one thing that that we found real quick was it 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 gets really stressful and a bit of high pressure once you get into a band 
and you're trying to figure out which one you want to shoot. Um, but hopefully, you know, like I say, you guys, you guys, um, don't fall into that, that trap. But one of the things we did do just kind of a little thing that we did is when we were down in camp, we did ask, um, so the owner was there and he spoke semi-fluent English and we asked him to introduce us to our guides when we got there. So we knew Mm -hmm. who they were. And then we also talked to them about kind of the type of hunting that we wanted to do, right? We were more of a kind of get off the horses and try to, you know, spot and stock because they're not Western hunters, right? They don't, do a lot of that. I mean, they do glass, but, um, that's really not a key part of what they do. So again, we kind of asked, you know, who our guides were, uh, and kind of did just a little introduction, um, again, and, and just talk to them about, you know, we'd like to stop the horses. We'd like to walk up to the animals as, you know, the best that we can type of thing. Yep. So just a little, maybe a tip when you guys get in there, if there is someone that speaks English or at least can translate, it's a good person to kind of help you guys, you know, meet your guides and make sure they understand kind of what your guys' expectations are yeah for sure so yeah and, and I, I know most of these these types of hunts um you know e- even in these third world countries the guides are, are super accommodating you know and they're they're there to work for you and want to give you the best hunt possible you just got to relay that information of what your expectations are what you're looking for yep yep no absolutely and they are and those i'll tell you those guys are they are machines man and, and as you probably know because you you've done this hunt but it's uh it's pretty incredible i was i was staying on their their heels pretty good because i i was really interested in in trying to stay up with them to make sure that you know wherever they were seeing where they were at if there was an opportunity that we were right there and a lot of times um you know andy and our camera guy had to take horses because they just they couldn't keep up with those guys because they yeah. were just freaking flying up the mountain but uh you yeah know. And that's the way it was we were, we were there before um when we picked up our guides their village um was just over 11k you know wow. so living and growing up in that you know their whole life they're above you know tree line and you know their blood just saturates different than ours and you know those guys you know in, in old hand-me-down clothes and shoes and oh i know no gloves and just you know can race up and down those mountains like it's nothing where you know, you get off your horse, walk 10 feet and you're huffing and puffing already. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things I had talked to when I was kind of working the logistics with their outfitter. I said, Hey, I'd like to bring, I was going to get a couple, you know, Kuyu items to bring them and stuff. And I said, is, does that like a good tip if we brought, you know, like some gear to leave them or whatever? And he goes, they don't take it. They won't take any of the stuff that you guys have. He said, you can bring it, you can leave it with them. They'll turn around and sell it. I was like, really? Um, so yeah. it's interesting is when we went there, they all had their own style of camo that they use. And, and it was like, I mean, I, I'm sure it wasn't like cotton based stuff, but it just, it didn't look like great quality stuff, but they wore that stuff day in and day out. And they had a jacket, basically like one layer. And then they had their pants and maybe a layer under that. And that was it. And they just would go, go, go on that stuff. None of them had any of the stuff that, you know, we typically see and, and use here in the States. So I, I did find yeah, that interesting. Fabrics. Yeah, yeah, no. And then, um, you, you know, you see a lot of uh, variation between the outfitters and the guides and, and the outfits in regards to what the, the guides have for gear, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's optics or clothes. Um, when we went the first time, neither one of our guides had um, any type of beanie caps or even gloves. Wow. And uh, we got caught in a huge snowstorm. We run, rode almost 10 hours on horseback in this blizzard, um, just getting pounded in the face and you know, luckily for us, we had extra beanie caps, extra gloves that, you know, we took off and gave to our guides because they didn't have any, you know, yeah. it's amazing. But, you know, at the same time, they, you know, never complained, nope. always hustling, 
you know, just working their tails off, just, you know, a, a different kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> two of the guys, two of our guides. So we had four guides. Well, we had four total guys. I think two were kind of the guides. We had a Wrangler and then kind of a Packer, but two of them wore muck boots, literally yeah. irrigation <laughs> rubber muck boots. And they would run up and down those mountains like it was nothing like, in those. Yeah, like it was nothing. Yep. And it was just interesting. One of them, he would take jeans that were like almost starch type jeans, like from like the calf down and he, they were like cut. So it was probably like a, a 10 to 12 inch, like, um, kind of sleeve of jeans and he would rub those and then he would put them on and he would put them around his ankles and like wedge them in with his socks. And then he'd put his muck boots on and that's what he wore. And it was incredible to me because I, I brought Kenetrex and my ran got completely tore up from the scree and the shale. And those uh-huh. rubber boots, they don't even cut. They don't tear anything. It's incredible how yeah. they do that. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, it, it's just funny how, you know, you do, you go to different regions of the world and, you know, we talked about food already, but just seeing how the people in that area and how they adapt to what they have available to them yep. and how they make it work. Yep. No, it's, it's pretty cool. And, and I, I tell you that, and you've traveled and you've done a lot of international hunting, but I think the coolest part is just kind of s- just immersing yourself in their culture and, yep. and the things that they do. And, and the first few days we were, we were trying to, you know, try to understand and we were, you know, we were communicating with them, but you have to use a lot of, you know, your sign language and, you know, Google yep, translate. In the dirt. Exactly. <laughs> Google translate on your phone's pretty good to have. Yep. But, uh, um, anyway, as we got to like day four and day five, you know, we were initially like kind of eating our dinner by ourselves, but, but by the time we were getting to the tail end of the hunt, we were together every night, we would sit around, the little jet boil things they had and they would prepare hot water for us and we were eating our you know our meals and they would cook their own but we were having conversations where we were trying to you know talk about things that we could commonly understand you know yeah. and it just, just got fun it really got fun towards the tail end of the hunt and you know i'd recommend trying to build that relationship up front you know with your guides or whatever because it does make it the experience a lot better yeah no for sure definitely adds to the experience just makes things easier yeah so just a couple other things i i just made a few notes and and things to think about not only for for you but others and also anyone that that may listen to this but one of the things that uh, as you as you know as you travel internationally you know with with rifles and firearms you know you want to make sure you have um you know all your paperwork up ahead you got your customs forms the uh, 4457 but the other key thing is important is making sure that you have an ammo case that's lockable and it's not in the same container as your rifle and i'm obviously i'm sure you know that but um we ran into a little bit of an issue um with that uh, because andy had just had his gunworks rifle basically sent to him with 100 rounds of load development in it and all the all the rounds were inside the case that the rifle came in and we're getting ready to check into LAX, and they're like, uh, "No, this has to be locked in a separate bag." So we were fortunate to get the um, get the ammunition in another one of his check bags, which then we locked up. Um, yep. But coming back from Bishkek uh, was was a little bit different story. Um, you know, the other issue was is that he was actually only permitted to take so much ammunition and, and brought more in than what was allocated. So they ended up taking some of his ammo in, in Bishkek. But um, it, just, it just goes to show you want to make sure everything's tight, right? All your paperwork, everything that you've got, um, you know, down on all of your, your forms, everything that the outfitters are, are working with you on, just make sure all that stuff is triple checked. Um, and, you know, traveling now with COVID and all that, it kind of changes the game a little bit. So I'm assuming you 
guys probably have to get tests and all that to, 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 to fly and all that. So just things that are, you know, normally wouldn't be an issue, but things we have to do now to travel. So. Yeah, for sure. And it's just, it's one of those things that goes back into your, your prior planning and preparation, you know, that goes into the hunt again, you've got all this time and, and financial investment into the trip. You, you've got to do your homework, you know, because every country is different. Every airline is different. Um, you know, as far as the different nuances of, of what's allowed, what's not allowed, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a lot different than traveling within the U S and you, you've really got to do your homework to make sure that you don't get caught, um, you know, in that moment where you don't have the ability or the time to fix it, you know, and it, it could be a hunt ender and, and you're stuck at the airport being turned around yep. by customs, you know, because you had the wrong form or like you talked about ammunition is a big one. You know, we don't think about that traveling where, you know, the ammo is thrown in the box and thrown in the gun case where, like you said, you've got to have a separate lockable container that's in your other checked bag, you know, so it's a lot of things that can go into these types of hunts and you really got to do your homework in them. Yep. Or on them. Absolutely. And on the, on the tail end of your hunt, which, which you'll find coming back is, is you want to give yourself, you know, so let's say you guys get done in six, seven days and you want to give yourself at least a day for all the documents. Cause all the CITES documents they have to put yep. together. Um, so all that stuff has to happen. Uh, and then also, you know, bringing home and flying back with, you know, the horns and the, and the capes and the hides and the skulls, um, you know, what, what, what our outfit did and they did a really nice job of it is we, we literally came off the mountain and the next day we ended up actually heading back to Bishkek, but that through the night, they boiled our skulls, they bleached them, did all the peroxide, got the skulls completely clean, um, had all the documentation in the process of being worked. And we went in the following day, did all the signatures, got all the information and, and, and got everything taken care of ahead of time. So we were able to basically pack all our stuff um, in our check bags, which we brought, I think I brought an extra 5,500 and a, and a 9,000 Taku bag and uh, ended up, you know, putting all my stuff in there and uh, flew home no problem with them. Yeah. And that's the way to do it. Um, if you can, you know, financially um, and timing wise is if you can bring your trophies back as check luggage, but you know, like you talked about, there's a lot of stuff that can go into that, um, especially clearing customs, yep. you know, back on the U.S. side. You've got to have all the documentation from the country you're leaving, um, you know, and then you've got to have all your documentation when you arrive into the U.S. And you got one thing that's off and you could take that hunt of a lifetime and now have your trophy seized and, you know, potentially destroyed yeah. off of one document. So, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of prep work and a lot of, a lot of planning that goes into it. Yep. Yeah, and I think the key was the things that they were more critical about is, I mean, we, we had all of our documentation, but, um, you know, just ensuring, um, you know, that the that the hides were dry and clean, which they were, um, and they salted, you know, they salted them. Even when we were on the mountain, they took good care of our, not only the meat, but also the uh, the horns and the hides. Yep. Uh, and then when we got into LAX, so, so we... We flew very similar um, transit as you did, Bishkek, Istanbul, Istanbul, back, and we flew through L.A. So when we got into LAX, um, of course, got off the plane and were routed to the customs. There's a there's an app that you can um, use on your phone that allows you to do a lot of the pre-work while you're actually waiting in line. Um, and then that kind of clears you through kind of the, the customs piece. And then there's the... Um, there's the uh, um, kind of the, the fishing game piece that you have to clear. So when you when you go through that checklist and you say, yeah, I've got animals in my check bags, that 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 routes you to that group. Yep. And uh, they basically wait for you at baggage claim. 
they like know, hey, are you the one hunting? You're like, yep, okay, so they get your bags. And they just go through stuff real briefly, take a look at it, look at the CITES forms. And we didn't have any problems in L.A., um, and they had to clear uh, the rifle too. But um, we ended up, I mean, it was probably a 20 to 30-minute ordeal, and, and we were done. So that that part was nice, but I, I know that it cannot always go that smooth. So having your documentation order is really important. So. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and um, yeah, I've hunted all over the world and come back through different ports of entry, LAX, San Francisco, Chicago, and, you know, every situation tends to be different. And, and yeah. you've got to allow that time um, to get through customs, you know, make sure that you're not missing that next flight going out. Yep. Yep, absolutely. But to that point, if you can take them home with you, that saves you a shipping cost or, you know, what have you, because you, you do a lot of your own taxidermy. So I'm assuming you're going to want to take your stuff and do it yourself, I'd assume. Yep. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, right now, uh, we're still waiting on our import permits. There's one more piece of paperwork that's critical to get in uh, our dolly back in. And uh, we still haven't gotten that um, import documentation yet. So as of right now, unfortunately, we're looking at leaving um, anything to do trophy wise with the Marcos, um, but fully planning on bringing the IMAX back with us. Okay. Okay. Well, cool. Um, just a couple other kind of travel tips. So, you know, when we came back um, from camp, we stayed in Bishkek uh, a couple days because we ended up actually getting our hunt done a day early and, and they took us into Bishkek. We ended up getting, uh, you know, a pretty nice hotel, like Sheridan Hotel downtown, which was super nice to kind of have an, a nice place to just kind of crash and shower. We also had the ability to have traveling nurses come to our room to do our COVID tests. Um, so, just a you know kind of a just something to remember on the back end of your trip um i know guys a lot of guys will stay at the hyatt too which is again kind of an americanized type of hotel uh but really nice and and uh again it's just kind of nice to have a, a location that you come back to um and and there's a lot of obviously restaurants and in, in bishkek and a lot of culture there that you can go take in it's obviously not the reason that you go there but logistically you just want to make sure to give yourself a little bit of time on the back end to make sure all your documents and all the testing and stuff that you have to do gets done and then um, when we got to the airport um, we actually had our kind of one of our our it was actually one of our outfitters but he was kind of our tour guide too he went in there with us and helped us clear all the customs and and kind of help translate um, with the Kyrgyz um, customs agents, which I'll tell you, that was super helpful um, because oh, one, yeah, for sure. you know, we don't speak their language, and, and two, they, they could translate to us and vice versa. And having a person there, if possible, to do that, it, it was a huge lifesaver. Yep. Yeah. It just makes the transition easier going in and out of there. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And so, anyway, those were just a, a few things that, uh, you know, things that I think, you know, I kind of just jotted down that were, you know, were important. The, the hunting is the hunting, right? And, and you're, you're seasoned and, and you guys are prepared and, and we'll be ready for that. It's just kind of all the logistics going, coming. You know, people ask me, what was it like traveling to, you know, mid Asia? You got, you know, Afghanistan just to the south. And quite honestly, I, I didn't feel any security threats or concerns the whole time. And, and, yep. uh, you know, had a lot of people asking me, are you second guessing going? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I mean, I, I feel perfectly confident, you know, and, and there were no issues. And, and, uh, you know, that's not to say that nothing, you know, something could happen, but I felt very safe, uh, in the country. And like I said, we spent a couple of days kind of touring around Bishkek and didn't feel at all ever concerned uh, about personal security there. So it was really safe uh, from our standpoint. Yeah, it's, it's one of those, um, ones where there's a stigma attached to any country with a stand, 
you know, on the back end of it. But, you know, Kyrgyzstan is one of those countries that's been a U.S. ally for a long, long time. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the airport there in Bishkek, the international airport, we have a huge air base, a military air base there, you know, and, and we've been partners with the Kurdish for a long, long time. And it, it's one of those uh, countries that, you know, is super safe. You, you'd be in more trouble in a lot of U.S. big cities if you wander in the wrong part of town than you would be in Bishkek. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the people there were super nice, super accommodating. Yep. The restaurants, everything, just just really cool. Like I said, I, it's I've always enjoyed when I travel, kind of like I say, immersing myself in the cultures, eating their foods, you know, drinking their drinks and all that. And it's just kind of a part of the experience I think is fun. And, and uh, you know, it's not obviously a place that we got to stay very long, but it was a pretty neat experience the time we were there. So, yep. Yeah, one of those things you just got to take in while you're there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, anyway, man, so, yeah, this is pretty exciting. I'm excited for you. I'm excited to see how you guys do. Um, you know, we could probably sit and talk, you know, gear for an hour, but, I mean. Oh, easily, yeah. Know, but uh, overall, I think, you know, you, you're pretty well prepared, and, and I know how you are with hunts and trips. You're probably like me. I had my stuff stashed out for two months prior to going on that hunt. Just, yep. okay, do I need this? Do I not need this? And. You know, my situation was a little different because I, I literally, you know, was in B.C., flew home for three days and then turned around and, and flew to Kyrgyzstan. So I, I kind of had to have all my stuff laid out for yeah. both trips. Um, yeah, have your ducks in a row before you left. Yeah, exactly. So there was a lot of planning and preparation for, for both trips. But um, super, super stoked I went on that trip. And uh, I was actually second-guessing going after my B.C. hunt. And I'm so glad I went because the experience was just awesome. And, and we just had a great time. So yep yeah it couldn't have been with a better person either so, yeah and, no and a good dude yeah no we had a good time and uh i'm assuming you, your group of four is probably a good group of guys so you guys are going to have a great time so yeah for sure long time buddies that I, i've hunted with before so we're all looking forward to the trip looking forward uh, to getting out and hunting together good Huge deal bucket list, uh, type of hunt so well man i wish you the best of luck and uh yeah, I mean, as you we, you and I talk pretty frequently, but uh, this will be pretty neat for you to go off the grid and come back and wait to see some pretty awesome photos. Hopefully you all guys, you know, hammer down on sheep and ibex and, and just have a great trip, which I'm sure sure you guys will do. And, and uh, like I said, they'll put you guys on good opportunity. You know, it's just, just making it happen. And, and uh, the, But the most important part is, you know, having fun and having a good time. And I know you always do that on your trips, so... Oh, yeah, for sure. But, yeah, hopefully looking forward to sending you that in-reach message uh, that says Big Ram Down. Yeah, yeah. I, I always look forward to that. I, I, I seem to get a lot of those from you, which uh, which is which I always enjoy, um, <laughs> which is pretty awesome, though, to, to get those messages from you. So, well, cool, man. So just real quick after that, what else? Um, do you have any other hunts planned for the fall uh, or anything else the rest of the year besides this? Yeah, I've got nothing big or set in stone. As soon as I got back, I got a big work trip uh, to go down to Kuyu for our annual biggest sale of the year. Um, and then if everything goes right, um, hopefully I'll be in BC in December um, hunting lynx with my buddy Johnny. Uh, another one of those hunts that got canceled due to COVID last year. Okay. And uh, now that the border's open, that one's penciled in. So hopefully that'll go. And then um, might go chase whitetails down in Texas with some buddies. But this is the last big um, on the calendar trip for the year. Okay. Yeah. And you've this year so far, you've, you've shot, uh, you shot a big moose, which we saw pictures of that. You shot a bear and you've also, you shot a sheep too, didn't you? 
I did. Yeah, I shot uh, a, a pretty good doll um, uh, back in August, and then um, kicked the year off right in January. Went down to Texas with uh, a couple of buddies from Kuyu and um, uh, one of our outfitter buddies, EJ Veros, and cleaned up on some big whitetail bucks and got to shoot some cold deer and some hogs and javelina, and then um, guided a couple of uh, successful brown bear hunts this spring, and then rolled into the doll sheep, and then as you said, killed a. a gigantic once in 10 lifetime type of moose and yeah. big nine foot brownie as a bonus so it's been been a hell of a year for me for sure yeah it just seems like these years keep rolling i mean you just keep just hammering just awesome animals and having awesome experiences and it's pretty cool to just i mean it's cool one thing about social media i'll say and it's a blessing and, and a curse at the same time but it's cool to yep. see people's success and how they do you know on there no, for sure yeah it, it's been pretty awesome always awesome watching you and your success uh but also you know your family too i'm really close to your family and, and your wife and your daughter and i enjoy seeing your family photos too which i know is a is a huge huge part of your life so it's pretty awesome just following you on social media so oh, i appreciate that buddy thank you well man we'll uh we'll close her down but i i'm glad we got a chance to connect before you went i thought it would be cool just to kind of you know, discuss, you know, things you're thinking about, stuff that I took away as maybe best practices and things maybe, you know, help you on, on your guys' trip coming up. And, yeah, super stoked to see how you guys do uh, and uh, excited to see photos. So, Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your time as always, buddy. Yep. And uh, I think we'll uh, have to make some plans maybe for next year to do something, huh? Sounds good. Yeah, I need to get down <laughs> there in uh, one of those trips down to Chuyu for work and uh, go shoot some pigs or something. Yeah. Yeah, and if the, you're down later this year, I'll have to try to maybe get up there. And I know you guys spend, I know you guys are pretty, pretty, pretty busy during that week on the sale, but it'd be good to yep. just connect and uh, see some old friends. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have to do dinner or something. Yeah, absolutely. Tacos. I'm thinking shrimp tacos are uh, yes. in our future, yeah, right? Yeah, our go to favorite for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, sounds good, buddy. Well, good luck. Uh, take care. Keep yourself healthy. And uh, yeah, let's uh, connect when you get back. Yep. Sounds good, Lucas. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk to you later, man. See you, brother. Hey, listeners. This is Lucas Paw, host of the RNA Outdoors podcast. Check out our website at rnaoutdoors.com to find all of our podcast platforms. Go listen today where you podcast. Additionally, leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Instagram at Rod and Arrow Outdoors, Facebook, RNA Outdoors, and YouTube, RNA Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. We hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Subscribe today and follow along on the journey.